electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Consumer Electronics Show, CES. It's how tech starts the year. It's in Las Vegas, massive show, massive booths, massive crowds, frankly, and then companies with their executives, lots of CEOs, trying to convince everybody else how they are going to own the future. Julia Borston and I were there for CNBC. Now we're here with you uh, for Fort Knox. We're gonna break down what's really important out of CES. Forget about the individual gadgets, things like that. What are the big things, the important things to watch? I am John Fort. This is Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people coming to you from the NASDAQ market site in New York. Julia Borston is with me in LA. This year, I'd argue there was no single hit product uh, to, to kind of take over for the smartphone. Not only that, there was no real contender. I mean, all of the, the presumption is gone from VR taking over, AR taking over, some boom in drones uh, that, that people had been hoping for. All of that's kind of out there, but it's not the next new thing. I mean, uh, Amazon announced that there have been 100 million uh, Alexa-powered devices sold either by them or by their partners, but nobody's getting rich, at least not nouveau rich, off of these devices themselves. The devices are selling services. And then at the same time, we got 5G, fifth generation wireless, coming out um, this year. Big things, big ideas like uh, autonomous driving, quantum computing also coming down the pike. Let's start off, Julia, talking about 5G. We sat down with both the head of AT&T's wireless unit, John Donovan, CEO of AT&T Communications, and Hans Vestberg, the CEO of Verizon. What was your takeaway on 5G? Well, look, there's no doubt that 5G was one of the technologies which was really in the spotlight at CES. I totally agree. There was no single breakout product this year. I think it was a little bit more incremental about the underlying technologies that are going to be driving the next leg of growth. Yes, it's voice. Yes, it's these home devices that are all going to be, of course, uh, voice powered. But then it's also 5G, which we do expect to roll out nationwide over the course of the next year. And the anticipation is that 5G is going to be the technology that's going to really be driving everything from faster streaming, which is a great thing for the media companies. I know we'll talk about that more later, but also the kind of technology that's going to allow, you know, robots to talk to each other in factories. That's going to enable cars to talk to each other on the roads. So the idea is that 5G is going to make everything better. And there was a lot of talk <laughs> from both CEOs who, who we spoke to about how this is going to be a quantum leap. And that is a term that Hans Vestberg used to explain how dramatic the change is going to be between yeah. 4G, what we have now, and 5G, this next generation. He said it's going to be much bigger than the last leap, certainly from three to four. Let's hear from the man himself, Hans Vesberg, talking about the speed behind 5G. Here he is. 
mainly right now we're going to see speed and throughput coming through and that's why we launched 5G Home for example already last year which is already in four cities. <coughs> this year you're definitely going to see smartphones coming out. We've already announced that we're going to have two smartphones in the first half of 2019. That's going to be one from Motorola and one from Samsung. So of course that's going to be based on our 5G network where we have millimeter wave. So it's going to be a quantum leap in how much speed and throughput you're going to have on that phone when you have the ultra-wideband sort of coverage. And when is 5G so, not 5G, though? Uh, there's a bit of a, a disagreement on what exactly the right strategy is to roll this out. Hans Vesberg, yes. T-Mobile, getting on AT&T's case for launching 5G-E, which isn't really Five, 5G. 5G evolution. Yeah, it's not really 5G. Yes. So this is a source of a lot of controversy this week, especially at CES. Mm -hmm. AT&T rolled out an upgrade to their current 4G technology. They're calling it 4GE. So if you qualify 5G. for this sort of yeah. improved, I'm sorry, 4GE, they're calling it 4GE. Um, or I'm sorry, 5G, 5G yes. evolution. So That's what it basically is, though, yeah is it's an upgrade to 4G, but they're calling it 5G evolution. And so on certain people's phones, they'll see a little a little label at the top that they are able to access this new service, 5GE. The issue is it's really just better 4G, right. and they're coming under attack by both Verizon and T-Mobile for false advertising and for confusing and misleading consumers. And what Verizon and T-Mobile have been saying is that this is gonna actually be bad for 5G over the long run, because you're gonna give people a slightly better experience that's really 4G, and they're not gonna really understand how much better 5G can be. And in the past, when, when we went from 2G to 3G, they, they called it 2.5G when they did that kind of evolution step. Same thing, 3G to 4G, there was 3.5G. AT&T, it's a little bit of a bold move here, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, look, AT&T says that they've been working on this for a while. They already announced that they were going to do this. Nobody should be surprised. They want to give their customers <laughs> the better technology, even if it's not a full upgrade to 5G. But I do think it's really interesting to look at this bigger question of do people really understand how much better 5G will be, and will they be willing to invest in the new devices that are not going to be cheap in order to really be able to access that? So it'll be interesting to see what happens over the course of the next year. And remember, um, Apple's not coming out with any 5G iPhones um, until 2020, I believe. So to look at what yeah, happens is people start having the option of buying 5G phones, but if they don't think it's going to be that revolutionary, will they really? And that brings us to the question of smartphones and is the sort of slowdown in the smartphone, the malaise overdone. We had that big warning from Apple last week about uh, iPhone sales. Samsung had a similar warning. But I brought up with John Donovan of AT&T, also Hans Vesberg, just the idea that maybe the network plays into this. We haven't had a big network upgrade, kind of that 4G LTE upgrade. It's been like five, six years since then. I remember back then, you wanted a faster phone. You wanted a faster experience. You had to upgrade to get that. It's been a long time since people had to upgrade to get a faster experience. Whether you're on a 6S, if you're into the iPhone, or an iPhone 10, Safari runs about the same. I mean, could it be that the network itself, once we get real 5G, however you define that, um, that'll give a leg up to the phone market? So 
Yeah, so presumably that would start to kick in in 2020, right? But the question then is, if you look at the price of these devices and the cost of the iPhone, I mean, I was talking to some people at CES about how iPhones got so expensive that they were more expensive than a lot of laptops. And I know we'll be talking hmm. about the PC later, but you have to look at sort of that cost-benefit analysis that consumers are doing. And I do think it's it's reasonable to question how 5G is going to be marketed and for Verizon, maybe you don't want this idea of 5G out there undermining the, the pristine nature of your service. Here's the key thing I, I think a lot of consumers, a lot of viewers need to realize. Phone subsidies. The reason why the carriers subsidized phones in the first place is the smartphone was the best salesperson for the network. And that's really all the carriers are trying to do. They're trying to hook you in and get you paying that monthly fee. And the thing that was going to get people paying a monthly fee for data was an iPhone out of the gate. I mean, better than Handspring or Palm or Qualcomm or any of those other players who tried to come out with smartphones before were able to do. That's why they were willing to subsidize the phones. They stopped subsidizing the phones when they felt like the network could sell itself. Everybody was already on 4G. Will they start subsidizing again when 5G rolls around? Well, when we talked to John Donovan, he left the door open. Yeah, absolutely. One, one interesting note here, uh, John, uh, I just was reading this article in The Economist about the fact that um, smartphone sales are slowing down is actually a good thing for the world. The <laughs> fact that 2018 total smartphone sales were actually down for the first time ever from 2017, um, The Economist are arguing that this means that there's saturation, that smartphones have been such a revolutionary device, such a democratizing device in so many ways, especially in terms of accessing information, that maybe this is a good thing. It's a sign that uh, that the world has the devices it needs and there's sort of a more of a sense of, of this device being everywhere now. So uh, an interesting perspective there from The Economist. Yes, that, that's certainly an argument you can make in developed markets, in some yeah. emerging markets in China where, where players like Huawei are seeing big growth at the lower end of smartphones and starting to see consumers trade up into the mid-range. I, I would argue there's a whole different market dynamic there. It's kind of in a boom Will it actually boom enough to challenge the premium end, Apple, Samsung, where people are feeling fat and happy? I don't know. Let's move on, though, and talk about artificial intelligence. Once again, this is Fort Knox. We are talking about the Consumer Electronics Show. And the real takeaways, the things you really need to learn from the show. I spent a little time with uh, Jenny Rometty, the CEO of IBM, talking about artificial intelligence and the new and deeper ways they're trying to apply it. Take a listen. I think people confuse all these different forms of AI and we gave a, the audience a kind of a spectrum to think about. On one hand, there's narrow AI, which is simple one do one thing, one task, one domain, uh, play a song. On identify the other end, cats. you can right. identify a cat, see a yeah. picture. On the other end, uh, people often talk about general AI, which is really mimicking what you and I do. That's decades away. We wanted to introduce this thing called broad, which says, hey, if I'm in a domain and I do one thing, it's not too hard to train me how to do something adjacent. So if I am an insurance company and I can identify roofs and I've been trained on roof types and I'm able to see this, well, once I've seen one roof damaged by hail, do I have to train to see every kind or no, no, I can now, I can see and I can identify hail on any kind of roof. So this idea of broad, this next level of AI, broad AI, it's really important for business because it does two things. 
reduces a lot the training time mm -hmm. and therefore time to market. So that is, if you talk to anybody about, well, why can't AI get going faster? It's the training time. And so that will make a big difference for business. So any decision, you can learn the next adjacent thing. And that's why I think the insurance and a roof is a good example of that. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned project debater. So that's another form, pushing the edge, which um, I would say, Take any kind of one of your speakers at home, talk to it four minutes and see what it does, right? It, not much. It, not much, right. it, it will They're do nothing. Simple commands, pretty simple much command, back and forth, back. retrieving information. And it's really speech to text to search is what it's, it's doing. Um, what the debater's able to do is, is I call it comprehension. So it can take, and you can speak to it for minutes and minutes and minutes, and it's able to actually understand what you're saying. And so what we've been working on, in fact, unveiled some of it for the first time six months ago, but here at, at CES, we're gonna pick a, a Controversial topic every day. Today it's going to be, should gambling be banned? And the masses, online from wherever you are in the world or here, can put in their arguments, pro and con. And it's the technology to go through, understand arguments, their veracity, uh, how many people feel a certain way, and it will build the pro and the con case. And Julia, uh, this would dramatically change the experience that we have with AI-powered devices. I mean, uh, in my at-work newsletter this week, you'll, you'll see me have a little quip. I mean, it, we already argue about AI taking over people's jobs. Maybe now it's taking over people's spouses if it's going to argue with you and beat you at <laughs> have debates. Have a conversation, yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, I think this is very exciting. I have tried all of these AI-powered home devices, um, and sometimes I like to compare the reaction of Alexa and Google Home just in my kitchen with my kids. And these devices are still not that smart. I mean, they could follow simple commands, but anything that gets too complicated, they're just not really capable of that now. And I think that hearing, you know, the way she described this next generation of, a, a, you know, being able to really comprehend, that is a game changer. And if you think about all the ways that could be applied in our everyday lives, I mean, we all interact with AI when it comes to customer service. And right. I'm sure every week we are interacting with AI-driven customer service. This is a huge business. It's a, it's a you know, multi-billion dollar business. And the more all of that can be automated through AI and it can become more intelligent, that's going to be a game changer um, for consumers and their experience and probably save companies a lot of money ultimately. I think another question is, IBM specifically, here's a company that fascinates me because their research is so deep, their people are so smart, Yet so often, they're not the ones to capture the profit and the value out of an area that they pioneer. I mean, look at Watson. How long ago was that Watson Jeopardy thing around you know, artificial intelligence? Wow, but Amazon's the one who comes out with the Echo. Um, do you see an opening here in the deeper AI for, I don't know, maybe IBM to get more of the value out of this innovation? I mean, it certainly sounds like she's aware of the potential there. I mean. Yeah. To take AI to the next level, if IBM can be the one to do that and to license that software, that would generate huge value for them. So it, it, it just depends really on how far ahead they are than everyone else and whether or not they could start licensing that and monetizing it before the others catch up. Now another use for AI, a little bit of a different tack, autonomous driving. So I uh, got some time with Anand Shashua. He's a co-founder of Mobileye, which was bought by Intel a couple years ago. And here's a company that is working on basically vision and intelligence for autonomous automobiles uh, so that we can really get self-driving cars. One of the things that they are doing is using the imagery out of the front-facing cameras in cars 
to create real-time maps of cities and kind of lay that over the existing maps and see things like potholes that weren't there before, other obstructions that you might not know about otherwise. It's a crowdsourced map. Listen to what he has to say about it. All the actors in the space of autonomous driving are building maps. The, question, the problem is, is the logistical information. How do you go and build these maps at scale to do it efficiently? And the crowdsourcing idea allows us to do it at zero cost, basically. Leverage the fact that all new cars are coming out with a front-facing camera. The majority of them have Mobileye inside. So this puts us in a good position to introduce new technology to the processing chip to enable us to build maps through crowdsourcing. Spent a little time in uh, an autonomous vehicle at CES too, right? I did. I had the pleasure of doing a segment very early in the morning <laughs> on Tuesday morning from the Las Vegas Strip. We were in one of the new Mercedes-Benz autonomous vehicles, and it was called the Vision Urbanetic. It was a big, looked like kind of a giant minivan, uh, and it could hold up to 12 people. There was no steering wheel, no one in the, in the, in the um, I, I don't want to call it a car because it didn't really feel like a car, no one in the vehicle, and it was going up and down the Las Vegas Strip. And one thing I was thinking about um, when you know listening to your interview with Mobileye is the idea that you don't want these different self-driving car companies to be siloed. You want them to be sharing the information and everything that they're gathering with their front-facing cameras and their lasers and their radar and everything else they're using with each other. Um, so we heard a lot over the course of CES about how new connecti connectivity, um, such as 5G and other, um, other new ways that you're going to have the cars talk to each other and also talk to to streetlights and everything else in cities is really going to be enabling autonomous vehicles. But I think the more you could have a single unified technology gathering data from the BMW and the Mercedes and the Google and all yeah. these different self-driving cars, the safer everyone's going to be. Now, you were up before the butt crack of dawn in that vehicle on the strip. Um, but a lot of viewers might not know exactly how crazy traffic gets when the rest of the world and the rest of Vegas is up, uh, once, the, once the sun is up, would you have wanted to be in that autonomous vehicle during peak hours? <laughs> well, here's the thing, John. Not only were we um, driving down the Las Vegas Strip before dawn, but it was also in a lane that was blocked off. They were very <laughs> careful. And I think there may be laws regulating this and preventing them from driving an autonomous vehicle down the street. Um, you know, it's just still such early days. But, you know, it, it was a very smooth ride. It was a be beautiful vehicle, but it did have a jerky stop and start. And I think it is kind of still too early to be driving that through insane traffic. And especially if you have pedestrians running into the street, you just don't know exactly what could what could happen. And I think that's why all of the different devices that these cars have, and they were explaining it's not just 5G, but they have this new um, technology. I need to remember what it's called, but it was called, I think, um, cellular vehicle to everything technology, CV2X, and we're going to be hearing a lot more about this. And this is sort of another level of connectivity that's going to make sure that these vehicles that we're in are communicating with everything around us. So, of course, a lot could go wrong, yeah. um, but the more they're all talking to each other, seems like it's got to help. Yeah, that, that would seem to help. Um, another technology I talked to Amnon about was called RSS. And it's not real simple syndication, the, the internet standard that a lot of blogs uh, and podcasts work on. It's something else that is really around the rules that autonomous vehicles are going to use for safety. What they try to do is figure out how humans think about a safety checklist 
always do this, don't do that, then do this, then do the other thing, just to kind of make sure that you stay safe and cautious and codify that in a way. They're trying to turn it into a standard. For me, the overall takeaway was, as you said, as we've said, it's still early on this stuff, even though uh, automakers, Tesla, others are, are selling vehicles with autonomous capabilities. This isn't going mainstream in the next two or three years. They're still yeah, figuring they're out standards around safety. This. Yeah. Exactly. They're not fully autonomous. A number of people raised the question at CS who's going to be liable? Is it the car maker? Is it the technology that's underlying the car? Um, you know, if, if you take an autonomous vehicle through Uber, is Uber liable? Um, so, so many questions about liability. But one thing that's interesting is the media companies I was talking to, they're already seeing this as an opportunity <laughs> down the line. Um, you know, Bob Backish, the CEO of Viacom, was saying he said down the line, even if it's 10 years down the line, means people will have more time to be streaming content. First of all, 5G is going to mean streaming is faster so you'll be able to stream video in your car and if you really are an autonomous vehicle and you don't have to worry about driving then you could be watching video. Absolutely. Cypress Semiconductor CEO saying the same thing. They came out with uh, technology around Wi-Fi 6 that takes that 5G signal and allows everybody in the car, even the person who used to be the driver, to stream stuff. Uh, maybe that'll be usable in a few years when this technology is a little bit more mature. But let's talk about streaming. Once again, this is Fort Knox. We are breaking down CES. Julia and I were there this week. No one hit product, but lots of platforms vying for importance, lots of things in development. We're going to tell you what's really important. Now, when it comes to the streaming wars, you got some numbers out of Hulu and how they're competing in the streaming space, their growth. Before CES, we got some pretty strong numbers out of Roku as well. Of course, Netflix is king of the hill in that space. Disney's coming out with streaming later this year. I feel like it's about to get real in streaming. It's not, it's not the cord cutters versus the cords now. It's, it's, it's turning into streamers versus streamers. Streamers versus streamers. Traditional media companies have become streamers. AT&T is going to become a streamer. So I think this year is going to be massive in terms of this streaming battle. And the landscape is really going to change this year because it's the first time that Netflix is going to see direct com competition from both Disney as well as from AT&T. Disney is launching its Disney Plus service. Um, it's going to be less expensive than Netflix. But if your kids like Marvel characters or Star Wars, you're going to probably subscribe to that. And then yeah. and you'll see, we could, we could debate that. But they have the IP that no one else is, really has access to. And then on the other hand, you have AT&T, which is going to be launching a three-tiered service um, around their content as well. And remember, they, of course, now have HBO as well as what used to be uh, Time Warner, now Warner Media, including Warner Brothers and all the other superheroes, the DC Comics uh, superheroes, including Batman. So it'll be really interesting to see how they each build out those services, how much they charge for them. Um, but that's really more of a competition for that Netflix uh, that Netflix video on demand service. And then on the other yeah. hand, you have what Hulu's doing. Hulu has 25 million subscribers. Some of them are paying $8 a month for video on demand. And some of them, probably about 2 million of them, are paying $40 a month for a skinny TV bundle. And I think we'll only see the rise of these skinny bundles as traditional TV continues to feel pressure. You know what I expect to see? Subscription fatigue. 
I mean, we're supposed to have all these skinny bundles, but now it's like bundles on top of bundles. Oh, I want Marvel. Okay, bundles. so yeah, I've got to get the, the Disney streaming service, but I want to keep my Netflix because I like Stranger Things. Oh, you got to have HBO for your Game of Thrones. You know, go on down the line. Eventually, it seems to me that whoever's got the most credit cards on fire and, and high loyalty, low churn, is going to be in position to create the new version of the cable bundle where they're going to say, it's okay, you want Spotify? Yeah. We'll give you that. And by the way, on top of Spotify, we'll also give you uh, some Disney or some Apple or some YouTube or some Hulu or, or whatever it is. I mean, isn't that where this is headed three to five years out? A absolutely. Absolutely. But we're already starting to see that. I mean, if you look at Amazon, they're creating bundles. You yeah. can subscribe to HBO or Showtime within Amazon channels. And then you have to look at who owns Hulu. And I think that really points to what's going to happen with Disney. Hulu will be 60% owned by Disney once the Fox acquisition goes through, a third owned by Comcast, CNBC's parent company, and 10% by Time Warner. I wouldn't be surprised if Disney buys out, uh, I'm sorry, by AT&T, now Warner Media. I wouldn't be surprised if Disney buys out some of its competitors who own pieces of that business. But we can definitely expect Hulu to offer an add-on of the Disney Plus subscription, or they could even offer it for free um, as a sort of trial offer. And then if you look at AT&T and um, their services in the works, they're going to bundle in HBO in there because that's all part of their, their parent company. So we're going to see these new digital streaming bundles rise. And the question is how many services people are going to really pay for? And can Netflix, which is not bundled with anything else, <laughs> continue to be offered as a standalone service? Um, or they're, are they going to have to team up with some of their frenemies? Yeah, I mean, they could become a bundler themselves. They are big enough. Finally, on Fort Knox, recapping CES, want to talk computing. Now, there's a range in computing. Uh, Natalie Karras uh, is asking about uh, quantum computing. IBM, I spent some time with IBM actually before CES, went out to their Yorktown research facility to see this new quantum system that they're putting together. It's an interesting space, but quantum is still so early. Like They've got these test systems that are able to uh, give researchers and programmers the experience of coding developing in a quantum environment, which is very different from doing it in a traditional uh, computing environment. Uh, companies like in material science, in, uh, in chemistry, are able to at least cut their teeth on how this stuff will work. Also in finance, it's another area where quantum you know, risk assessment uh, is expected to have a big impact, but it's still early. It would seem to be late. For the personal computer, that was declared dead by pundits years and years ago. But Julia, I felt like the PC was back. If there was, if there was kind of a hit product out of CES, the PC category was pretty strong. AMD had these new chips for Chromebooks that actually are dedicated, focused, relatively high power, and still the Chromebooks are under 300 bucks, which also translates into a little over three iPhone XS's. That's crazy. I mean, if you think about the price points and the computing capability, don't you think these things are happening inversely? Not by coincidence, yeah. but there's a real inverse correlation here. The price of laptops, of PCs are coming down. The price of smart smartphones is going up. And you could just get so much more now when you're buying a, a PC than you ever could before. Um, you, you, there, there must be a connection here. 
Yeah, I, I think there is. I mean, on the one hand, um, I spend more time with my smartphone than any other computing device. So yeah, I, I'm willing to pay a bit more for it. On the other hand, I, I got the iPhone X last year, uh, initially enjoyed it, but actually it caused me some eye strain, I think, the OLED screen. And I uh, wasn't able to figure out why. I downgraded to the uh, iPhone 8. I'm happier with it. On the other hand, uh, I, I've got a PC at home, do some content creation, really enjoy that. I've invested more in it, threw some more memory in. I mean, yeah, the, the PC turns out not so dead after all. So while we wait for this next upgrade cycle, what are you expecting to see in terms of PC sales? Well, I, the I think- The next upgrade cycle for, for the iPhones and for, for smartphones for 5G. I think gaming is going to be a big part of it, not only just simple gaming, but the capabilities around it. Talk to Lisa Sue, the CEO of AMD, about exactly that. Take a listen. We've been um, really uh, happy with the PC market. You know, PCs, um, as you know, for a period of time, they were you know completely unsexy. Um, and now when you look at it as a market, um, it's a really important market. It goes across a number of different segments, uh, whether you're talking about commercial PCs um, or gaming PCs, or you talked about education. And I think our philosophy was we could bring something to the market. You know, you know we knew that our technology fit really well at the high end. And so, you know, we spent um, quite a bit of effort with content creators. Um, you know, uh, we talked about gaming. And then in education, it's, um, it's just really cool, you know, what people are doing in education. And uh, the fact is um, everyone needs innovation, and AMD can be part of that. Um, what's the differentiator for AMD in that segment of the market? It seems like others have been providing chips into Chromebooks that are, not necessarily purpose-built for the market. They're at the low end. You're providing something that's a bit more uh, performance-focused, but still sub $300. So what are the conversations with your partners like around how to position that? Because they didn't go as cheap as they could have. Yes. They're positioning them as premium-end Chromebooks. It, it's a different tack. Yeah, and um, I would say just take a look across education. I think you have the whole gamut, right? Um, you have, let's call it um, low-end um, notebooks that are really for access, sort of just getting more and more people access uh, to computers. Um, and then you actually have, um, you know, these top schools that are using them for real learning and real uh, creation and real capabilities. And so I think our approach to the market is to really go across the spectrum. And, uh, you know, we integrate graphics, uh, we integrate a lot of horsepower. And so, you know, we want to help grow the market. We want to help transform the market, you know, not just sort of play in the market. Lisa Sue, New York native. She's actually uh, an alum of Bronx Science. Bronx Science was in her uh, keynote presentation, that's one of those high-end schools that she was talking about. Julia, the, the PC space, what's old is kind of newish, depending on what segment of the market you look at. Jensen Huang from NVIDIA sort of threw some shade at AMD over the Radeon 7 announcement, graphics card beef emerging in the, in the Vegas desert. Yeah, a lot of inside baseball wars over there, John. But from where I'm sitting, this competition just means the quality is going to improve dramatically. And it seems like that's going to have wide-reaching implications far beyond education. Um, it'll be really interesting to see in terms of, you know, we were talking about quantum leaps earlier um, with 5G Literally. and with yeah. mobile. And with sort quantum. of the quantum leaps that are being made in PCs as well. Absolutely. Julia, 
It was great hanging with you in Vegas, covering the news here on Fort Knox, boiling it down, letting people know what's really important. This has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people, bringing you the latest out of CES, what to really focus on. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you next time. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's a brand new and great way to keep in touch with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. It's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. You can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV. Also, find Fort Knox in the featured area there. And meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.